Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Good Thursday morning. It's mornings, well, without Carmen again today. Well, mostly without Carmen. We'll actually be hearing from her uh, in just a few minutes here on Faith Radio. I'm Paul, generally her producer. Ryan's filling in that role again today because I'm hosting. And, you know, there's only so much a person can do at one time. I mean, I, walking, walking and chewing gum can be a little difficult for me, Ryan. So, you know, I... And, and it would be for most people. Yeah. You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, if you missed it just a few moments ago, it's our uh, our Growing Your Faith verse for today is Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. He is the one to whom we are accountable. Now, it sounds a bit scary. Let's look at it, especially within this context. Especially if you're also one who likes to fly under the radar. You, you don't want to draw attention to yourself because you are trying to avoid getting singled out or persecuted. Now, if you read the book of Hebrews, the writer is dealing with some Jewish Christians who are trying to do just that. Being a follower of Jesus was costing them standing in their Jewish communities. Doing things like talking about Jesus as Messiah, trusting in his sacrifices, not the temple sacrifices, or even their own circumcision, but in Jesus as their connection with God. And then hanging out with non-Jewish believers who haven't gone through what is considered the right proselyte process. These Jewish believers were under pressure to uh, a pressure that is to abandon Jesus or at least de-emphasize that part of their lives. Just just be a just good, just be a good Jewish person here. Do the right stuff. Trust Moses. De- be defined by what he gave us. Trust the community. Then you'll have rest. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing to encourage these believers that whatever they want to rely on in the world, Jesus is greater. Angels? <laughs> Jesus is greater. He's the son of God. He's higher than the angels. Moses and the law? Jesus again, greater. After all, Moses and the law point to Jesus. The Aaronic priesthood, the temple sacrifices, all that. Again, Jesus is greater. In later chapter, he talks about how Jesus is the great high priest of a greater order. Why would you forsake so great a salvation, so great a Messiah for what is lesser? Okay, back to Moses and the law. The Jews wanted to rest their identity in the works of the law. But what was that? But was that really rest? What about faith, not your works, but God, but having faith in God's completed work, not your own works? It is this rest that is truly rest. This is the real Sabbath. The writer of Hebrews focuses on Sabbath rest in the verses just before this and looking at how those who receive the law, but without truly trusting in it and what it was pointing to, in this case, Jesus. Even if they practiced the weekly Sabbath, never truly entered into Sabbath rest. Why? They didn't believe. The writer recounts over and over how they did not heed God's voice, but hardened their hearts. 
He doesn't want this for the Jewish believers in, in the Messiah to harden their hearts right now. Again, the pressure they were dealing with was to de-emphasize or better yet, just abandon Jesus. Well, maybe I can just de-emphasize a little bit, right? God, you, you know my heart, right? <laughs> uh, you're right. God knows your heart. And remember what he's looking for. As we have seen this week, one who trusts in God through Jesus and his coming kingdom, who persevere in the faith, living in light of that kingdom here, now, to not neglect so great a salvation. You want rest? Okay, let's read our verse today, actually backing up to verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, talking about Jesus, that that you that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of the Lord, or the word of God, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Again, remember, and now that sounds scary, actually, that God sees everything. That's actually good news if he knows you really do have faith because the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully devoted to him, as it says in Second Chronicles. Yes, God knows our hearts. Nothing is hidden from him. And what he seeks is true faith, true trust to build that up. So let's live it out in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, and in our world, even when it's not easy. Let's persevere. And let's help others do that, too. As And let's help each other do it cross-generationally. Now, I'm Gen X. Uh, these days, there's a lot of talk about Gen Z, the uh, teens through mid-20s generation and their challenges. But what about Gen Y, the millennials, the late 20s through early 40-year-olds? <laughs> Ten years ago, they were everybody was talking about them. But these days, not so much. But they have certain needs. They are real. Now, as I mentioned, uh, this is Mornings Without Carmen, mostly. We usually would be talking with Ben Johnson at this time. He, unfortunately, was unable to join us. But that's okay, because Carmen had a conversation that she recorded with George Barna from the Cultural Research Center. They recently released a new resource called Helping Millennials Thrive. And we'll hear that conversation next here on Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. George Barna is back with us today. What a joy. Um, He's come with a book, Helping Millennials Thrive, Practical Wisdom for a Generation in Crisis. George, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Good to be here. All right. Normally, we talk with you about particular research and reports on research. This is a book, Helping Millennials Thrive. So um, tell us a little bit about this project. Remind us about the underlying research. You know, like what's the intent of all this? Well, you know, we started out doing this because when we look at what's happening in America today, of course, I'm a big worldview guy. And we know that a person's worldview is developed by the age of 13. Who impacts them? Well, predominantly arts and entertainment media, but also parents have still a significant influence. Who are those parents? Well, it's primarily the millennial generation. So we wanted to take a look at that generation, understand what's going on with them, 
so that we could understand what do we need to do to make sure that the worldview in America keeps getting better and better and doesn't continue to dissipate. And as we look at that, I mean, the importance of the group is undeniable. It's the single largest generation numerically in America's history. And it's also our primary parenting generation. So it's a, a critical group to take a look at. Uh, but as we did that, you know, I was entering the project thinking, yeah, let's, let's look at parenting issues. But before we could even get to parenting issues, we found that the parents themselves have a lot of issues that they're wrestling with. And, you know, so those are the kinds of things that we're talking about in this book. We know that you can only give what you have, can't give what you don't have. And so when we're talking about raising healthy, godly children in America, so much of it comes back to their parents. And if they're not godly and they're not spiritually healthy uh, or healthy otherwise even, then we're going to have big issues on our hand. And I think that's partly what we uncovered with this research. Okay, it always helps me to do the math and to remind myself who the millennials are, who we're talking about. And you are talking about people who are currently in the parenting part of their life or they or that's the zone they're in. So this is this crowd's like basically 27 to 42. Is that about right? Well, the way that we measure, and if you talk to 10 sociologists, you'll get about 14 different definitions of millennials. <laughs> but uh, How we, old are they? Yeah, we, we look at them as the ones who are currently 21 to 39 years old, born 1984 okay. to 2002. Okay, so currently 21 to 39. All right, so when I think about this group of people, I would say we're talking about young adults. I recognize that there are people who consider themselves young adults you know, that are younger than this. Um, but I think that 21 to 39 millennials, young adults, what do you, tell us a few things that you know about them. Having researched this crowd, what do you know about millennials? Well, th th there are four things that I think they're really struggling with today. And for those of us who, who look out at the culture and say, I want to help, I want to make things better. I think Christ put me here to make a positive difference in the world and to give him the glory for that, bring other people to him in the process. All right. So there are four openings, if you will, that I see with millennials coming out of the research. Number one is that uh, they're struggling with meaning and purpose. Three out of four of them say they have no sense of why they should bother getting out of bed in the morning. They don't have a sense of purpose. They don't feel that they have a calling. They don't feel like God has given them any kind of special or supernatural gifts that they can use to do, you know, really cool things in life. Secondly, it's a group that believes that relationships are really critical to having a meaningful and uh, important life. But it's also a group that says, but I don't have those kind of relationships, they're extremely desirable, but they're lacking in my life. I don't have deep, lasting, trust-based kinds of relationships. And then thirdly, we know that they're also very upfront about saying they have significant mental health issues. They don't always use that particular phrase, but they will admit that they often, if not daily, multiple times daily, feel anxious or depressed or fearful, or even suicidal. 
And of course, this is the generation that has the highest suicide rate of any in America's history. So, you know, they're, they're wrestling with all that. And the final thing I'll say goes back to their spiritual life where they have abandoned Christianity as their faith of choice and are essentially piecing together their own faith. But in the process of doing that, it's because their worldview rejects the Bible as the basis for their worldview. And so instead, what they've done is they've said, no, it's all up to me. There's no God, really, who's involved in my life, even if even if you believe that there's a God who created me, and a huge proportion of them don't believe that. But even those who do would say, but that God's not involved in my life. He's not involved in the world. He's distant. Uh, so, you know, it's really all up to me if he exists. And, of course, a lot of them don't believe he exists, so they don't feel like they have any competition here for power and authority. They really do believe that the weight of the world rests on their shoulders. And so when you put together this kind of atheism and narcissism and isolationism and uh, mental turbulence and uh, confusion about life, wow, that's a hard life to live. Yeah, the consequences of having abandoned a faith that is that has an author and therefore an authority outside of myself, if I've abandoned that, then of course I'm going to struggle with a sense of meaning and purpose if I can't, you know, gen, gen one up for myself. Why would I have a sense of calling? I'd be the one calling myself. That seems crazy, which leads us to that seems crazy. Um, this, you know, these genuine, honest struggles of anxiety, depression, and then suicide you know, suicidal tendencies and ideation um, and mix into all of that an inability and failure to form these long term trusting relationships. If that's where you're putting like human relationships were not designed to bear the weight that only a relationship with God can bear, but they don't have that. I just it all seems of a piece to me. And so we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. George Barna. We're going to talk about helping millennials thrive. Now that we have gotten to know them and our, our concern is raised, let's talk next about some practical wisdom for this generation in crisis. More up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up, they come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. 
Continuing our conversation now with Dr. George Barna, we're talking about helping millennials thrive, practical wisdom for a generation in crisis. All right, George, now that we have a sense of understanding this deep and desperate need among this generation of young adults, 21 to 39, give us a little hope, like project some hope. Well, really what what we're faced with here is a crisis of discipleship. Mm. And so when you look at this particular generation, why do they feel alone? As long as there are those of us who are Christ followers in this culture, nobody should feel alone. I mean, it's our job to come up alongside them and and to get to know them, to befriend them, to love them, to help them, to encourage them, to support them. If we think of ourselves as believers, as primarily disciple makers, because that's our, our primary job on the face of the earth, then it's an issue of, okay, who can I get to know who needs to be discipled, who needs Jesus, who needs that, that strength, that understanding, that love, all the things that Jesus brings into our life, and gives us a sense of purpose for getting out of bed in the morning, gives us the strength to do the tough things and the courage to face the hardships and the tribulations that every day brings along. I mean, that's that's one of the numerous benefits of being a follower of Jesus. But other people don't have that. Most other people in America don't have that. And, and the vast, vast majority of millennials don't have that. So I've got to understand that, okay, here's a group of people that's, you know, kind of floundering, if you will. And part of the reason is they don't have any strong, meaningful human connections. Can I be one of those? Not unless I try, not unless I really put myself out there to do this. So number one is, you know, developing the relationship. And that means being the kind of person that they can trust, kind of person they can rely on, being someone who's willing to invest time and energy and emotion into the life of this other people. One of the things that I've discovered, Carmen, about effective discipleship in America today is that it's a one-on-one process. It's not about taking them to events. It's not about getting them into a class. It's not about them being in a small group. It's about them being my friend and me being able to slowly, consistently, persuasively introduce them to Jesus. And so one of the biggest skills that I take into that I've discovered is being able to listen. Just let them talk. These are people who are in pain. These are people who are confused. They're struggling. They're trying to make sense of it all. They've beaten their head against the wall day after day after day. It's not working. And so I've got to listen. But then when it's time for me to respond, it's not time for me to respond and say, whoa, you're a bigger loser than I thought. It's time for me to say, wow, that is tough. You know, and then to just ask them some questions about why they believe what they believe, why they do what they do, how they came to some of these conclusions, what some of the outcomes of those ideas and behaviors have been, not in judgment, but again, so that I can continue to understand where they're coming from. And then I have the opportunity to start giving them some feedback. Again, not negative, 
But if I love them, I'm going to do something to try to help them. And the Bible has all the help any of us needs. And so it's up to me to know the stories and to know the principles so that I can give them some of these stories. Or maybe it's stories out of my own life of, wow, I get it. I went through that. Here's what I went through, and here's what I faced. And and then at the end of that, here's what I found. And so you've got this Socratic dialogue that's taking place. And, and you know, I mean, it's not all going to happen in one sitting. A, a real relationship is, you know, you're spending life with them. And so when you are in their presence, and even when you're walking away from them, they're going to be watching you because they want to see, oh, that was really interesting. But does he do what he says? Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that we found that kids in America today are are rejecting their parents because their parents say one thing and do another. And so kids are deciding, wow, my parents are just as confused as I am. They don't have the answer. I got to look elsewhere. We don't want to be that kind of person. We want to be someone who, when I say X, Y, Z, I live X, Y, Z, whatever it may be. As that biblical principle is, that's who I must become. I have to embody it. And, you know, when you have that kind of relationship, you start to give these people hope and comfort and security. And that's what they need. We're talking with Dr. George Barna. Um, We're talking about his book, Helping Millennials Thrive, Practical Wisdom for a Generation in Crisis. George, what you just described, that there must be this alignment or this integration of the mature disciple, their beliefs must line up with actions. And that sounds right. It also sounds right to me that mentoring is the way forward. There is this aching desire among these young adults to have real relationships with mature people. I'm also wondering if a vocational, like one of the things that you said, and I wrote this down, was like, go and seek them out. And so I'm wondering, you know, maybe people could look around at work, like maybe vocationally, because that may be like a natural connecting point. But then as soon as I say that, I realize a lot of people now work from home. So when you say go seek them out, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that getting over that initial step of actually finding and meeting a person in this age group that I could do life-on-life discipleship with, uh, that's a really huge first scary step. You know, Carmen, we have all different activities taking place in our life. So there's work. Sometimes you work with people face-to-face. Sometimes you don't. But if you don't, you still encounter people elsewhere. So, for instance, uh, with my grandkids, I will take them to their sports activities. Right now it's baseball Mm. season. So we're taking them to their baseball games, their practices, uh, you know, different things that they're doing as a team. And when I'm there, I'm around the parents of the other players, and so after practice, it's an easy thing because our kids have been together. We've been on the sidelines chatting about stuff. Steve's so things say, hey, you guys want to go, uh, you know, over to Burger King, grab something to eat? And that gives me an opportunity to start building the relationship. You know, I mean, there, there are all these little things where we've just got to be tuned in to, whoa, here's an opportunity. I, I'm going to have to make it one. But we're in this physical space. We're sharing this experience and now I can take it to the next step if I have the eyes to see it. I only have the eyes to see it if I want to see it. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be a part of this process is being awake enough 
to say, oh, you know what, I think here's a way that I could connect with that person outside of where we are right now. So good. It's so good. The book is so good. Um, It's not just George's voice. There's lots of other voices um, in here as well. Uh, That'll be a real treat when you when you get it and open it up. Um, Helping Millennials Thrive, Practical Wisdom for a Generation in Crisis. George Barna, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Okay, back to Mornings Without Carmen right now. It was great, though, hearing from Carmen. She'll be back fully on Monday here on Faith Radio. I'm Paul, her producer filling in. Now, last month we had Mother's Day. This weekend, Father's Day. You know, we get excited about that. You know, we might even break out into dad jokes over the weekend. Marriage, children, family. We love to celebrate strong family life. It's important. What about singles? Do we, in our celebration of family life, often neglect or miss out on on singlehood and what God is doing in their lives, the calling he has on their lives. Coming up in three minutes, I'm going to be talking with Danny Treweek. She's the author of the book called The Meaning of Singleness. And we're going to probe this idea, this topic more deeply. That's coming up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You know, there are a lot more people living in our society who are single. And when you talk with them, especially if you're married, you feel sorry for them. Hey, I'm Paul filling in for Carmen here on Faith Radio. And joining me now as we look at singleness and the meaning of singleness is Danny Treweek joining us from Sydney, Australia. Thank you, uh, Danny, for staying up so late your time to join us here on Faith Radio. Thanks for having me, Paul. Okay, now your new book, The Meaning of Signalists, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. There's a lot in that title and subtitle. But first, let's start off, because this, this comes out of a research project. This is the, the book is essentially your, your doctoral dissertation. So it's a pretty meaty book, and we got to do our job here about bringing the cookies down to the bottom shelf for, you know, people like, <clears throat> like me. So, (laughs) but it's also, okay, you're also a person who is single. And so the research is not just research, it's personal for you as well. So let's start off with the question, you know, thinking about people who are single. When we use the term single, what is the prevailing mental image most people in our broader culture and also within the Christian church have when they, they think of single well, I think the first thing to, to mention is that the word single itself just does so much heavy lifting. Um, mm. You know, there's so many different ways that people can interpret what that that word is being used in context. And so it's always important in the conversations to kind of identify what we mean. And certainly when I'm talking about singleness, uh, I'm speaking about it um, as those who have never been married like myself, but also including those who are single again through whether it be divorce or widowhood. Uh, and so I think that's the first thing to say is, Often we think of singleness as kind of this monolithic life situation, but actually there's a lot of complexity and a lot of different circumstances involved in what it is to be a single person in our world Um, and in the church. And there's very different perspectives at times between the church and the world on all of this. But there is also some commonalities between both of those spheres of of, um, life. And I think the prevailing attitude towards singleness is that it's, 
it's essentially a bit of a tragic life situation. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's a bit of a pit of uh, you know it's a, a, a life situation to be pitied. Um, it's an unfulfilled life situation. Uh, for many Christians, it's kind of like the life that you're waiting to end so that you can begin real life through marriage. So, you know, it's it's a pretty depressing kind of question to have to answer, but <laughs> that is what it is. But yeah, I, I guess when I was reading your your uh, your book, the word lacking or incomplete was oftentimes mm. the refrain both outside the culture and inside the culture. Now, within the evangelical subculture, much of our concept of the flourishing family comes out of our celebrating the nuclear family. Yet, here's mm. the thing. The concept of the family and family relations, especially the nuclear family, well, are generally the concept of family through the centuries, including in the centuries of the church, has varied a lot. And yet we seem to be caught up on this nuclear aspect. I want you to talk about that because... Living past 1950s, that seems to be our our go-to mental image. Absolutely. And that's the fact, again, you know, we've just said that singleness is a word that does a whole lot of heavy lifting. The phrase nuclear family also does a lot, lot of heavy lifting because if we're just talking about, um, you know, the family, the basic unit of the family involving parents who are married with their children living in relationship with each other, then there's absolutely nothing unobjectionable about that. And that has certainly been clear right through history as the basic foundational unit of society. But how that family has actually lived in relationship with itself, with its broader extended kinship networks, with the broader society and community around it, has been very historically contingent throughout throughout history and certainly church history. And you know, our vision of the nuclear family sort of arising from the 1950s um, golden year, golden era, uh, is very, it's very recent. It's very novel. And I think we think as Christians, well, that's the way, that is the Christian family. That is the way Christian families have always been set up as this kind of self-contained, almost isolated unit. I like thinking of the picket fence as kind of the visual metaphor mm -hmm. of the household as being separate to the world outside. It's where we retreat into and the nuclear family becomes this self-contained um, unit that relates within itself but is very selective about how it relates outside itself. That is a very recent historical development that's been really facilitated by the capitalistic society that we live in in the West and would have been very unfamiliar to most Christians throughout church history whose households were very much open and outward facing and part of the community around them in very significant ways. And then we add on to that, okay, um, now I'm not dissing any of the ministries that focus on, you know, family life or stuff like that. Those are important. Family life is important. Mm. And, you know, where, where you're seeing people probing into the Bible and looking at, okay, the creational plan God had for human flourishing and, and such, which is good. But, mm, and you used a word in, in your, in your book, myopic. Sometimes we have this myopic view of, and I'm big, you know, in my studies lately, I really like exploring the creational order, natural law, stuff like that. Mm. But sometimes we can 
focus too much. And here's where we kind of truncate our thinking in several areas, like we did with the nuclear family. We took a concept. Yes, th- there is something called the nuclear family, but it's you brought out it should be outward facing, not inward, and it connecting with other family and, and community. Well, again, here we have we get focused myopically on the created order and the subtitle of your book, Danny, is Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. And that means we have to broaden our vision. We can't be so focused on this one area myopically. So uh, for just a couple of minutes, focus on that. What do you mean by creating this eschatological vision? Yeah, it's a big word, isn't it? And, yeah, it um, is. <laughs> it, 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 it I, I don't want to get too means, nerdy but, here, but it, it's an important word. When my when my mother picked up a copy of my book for the first time, she looked at the cover and she desperately tried to pronounce eschatological and couldn't make it work. So <laughs> um, eschatological just means reflecting on uh, the new creation that we're waiting for. The 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 end goal of um, of this creation is for it to actually become a new creation. We, and so eschatological is just thinking about the time that's yet to come, the promises we have in that, but also the, the importance of reflecting on that for life here and now. And just going back to what you were saying before, we are very, very good at grounding ourselves in Genesis. And there, you know, I want to affirm the importance of Genesis. We, there is so much that we understand about who we are as humans in relationship with each other, in relationship with God, in this creation that is vital, that arises even just from the first couple of chapters of Genesis. But God's story does not end at Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. You know, there is a lot, lot more to God's story. Um, And really the Bible is the full storyline of God's story and therefore also of our story. And so as followers of Jesus, we don't just look back or we ought not just look back over our shoulder to Genesis, but we ought to be looking forward to Revelation and understanding what it is to follow Jesus in this life in light of the full scope of God's story. Now, if we do that, then for both, I think, marriage and singleness, essentially, I think our minds would be blown about how much more majestic and and wonderful God's purpose and meaning and dignity for both of those life situations is if we actually focus just as much on revelation and and what we understand of the new creation mm-hmm. uh, as being significant for this life now rather than just restarting in Genesis and not going beyond there in terms of our thinking about these topics. Okay, we're going to probe into that a little bit more in a few minutes here. We're talking with Danny Treweek. She's the author of the book, The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. Now, it is a weighty book. I do have a few copies that we're giving away. So if you'd like to get another drawing, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. I I will admit, because I I haven't completely read it, but what I was reading is like, okay, I had to sit back and chew a little bit here, which is a good thing. I like that, Danny. So you, you made me happy. You made me happy. Excellent. I'm pleased to hear that. (laughs) But anyway, if you'd like to get in the drawing again, 877-933-2484, text the word book to that number. When we continue, I want us to unpack this eschatological vision of, well, maybe a little bit on the marriage side, because what you said there, Danny, is really good, but also definitely on the singleness side, um, because the church has struggled with this vision for years, actually almost from the beginning. And we'll talk about that here on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. 
As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Okay, back to cultivating this eschatological view of of singleness. Yeah, you probably weren't thinking you're going to wake up and think about eschatological stuff. Anyway, <laughs> I'm Paul filling in for Carmen here on Faith Radio. Danny Truweek is joining me from Sydney, Australia. She is the author of the new book, The Meaning of Singleness, uh, the re- Retrieving an eschatologi- Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. Now, I think what might help here, Danny, because we, we were talking about, yes, there's an eschatological vision for marriage, because people probably go, what? What do you mean by that? I mean, you, you know, the creational aspect and all this other stuff. And, you know, good family life is a very important thing. But an eschatological vision for, for our, you know, your, you and your spouse? I mean, explain that, because I think by doing that, Danny, will help us as we switch over to talking about singleness with an eschatological vision. So let's start with marriage, because we can be short on this, but I think you can get to the point pretty quickly here. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think the way in is to to talk about marriage to get to singleness. Uh, so, and I think a lot of your listeners may be more familiar with it than they realize in that we know from a passage like Ephesians chapter five, uh, that the apostle Paul talks about human marriage, marriage between a man and a woman, being part of the great mystery that points towards something even more ultimate than it is. And that is the marriage between Christ and his church in the new creation. We see that picture in Revelation of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so uh, many of us as Christians are familiar with the idea that marriage in this life ought to actually be a signpost that points towards the next life and that that marriage in the next life between Christ and the church actually gives dignity and meaning and significance to marriage in this life. So that's something that we're we're a bit more familiar with. Um, What... I really wanted to engage with was, well, is there something going on there for us about singleness as well? Is there a way that that model is actually a way that we can think about the dignity and meaning of singleness in this life? Exactly. And that's, that's where I wanted you to talk right now, Danny, about what, what it is to have an eschatological vision for singleness. How, how does that fit into God's grand plan to bring about his kingdom? So we just discussed that in the new creation, uh, Jesus Christ, we get the picture of Jesus Christ, the, the bridegroom, marrying his bride, which is the church, all of us collectively. None of us are individually going to be married to Jesus. We're, we're corporately, collectively, as his body, the church, going to be married to him. Uh, but the Bible also has something to say about what will it be, what will the relationships be between us as resurrected human beings in the new creation within the church? What will it look like for us to relate to each other, not simply to Christ, to God? And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is talking to the Sadducees, and you can go and read the passage yourself. I won't go into all the details. It's um, it's a tricky little passage in some ways. But in that passage, Jesus gives us a really fascinating insight into a very specific detail 
of what is waiting for us in the new creation. And he says that in the new creation, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And what he means there is we, marriage, human marriage will not continue into the next life. Uh, it is for this world only. It's a great thing for this world only, but it doesn't extend between human beings into the next life. In the resurrection age, none of us will be husbands and wives to each other. And so we all will, in that sense, be quote unquote single. So our resurrection future as men and women, embodied physical men and women relating to each other for all eternity is going to be as people who are not married to each other. So if we've got that picture of the world to come, and that's going to be when we're at our most perfect, our most fully known, we are going to fully know and be fully known. We will love each other perfectly, but it will not be as husbands and wives. It will not be with sexual union on the cards. That I think actually then gives us some understanding that living that life here and now, the unmarried life, the celibate chaste unmarried life has a dignity now because it has this incredible dignity in the future. So that's that's the ideas that I'm playing with in the book. Okay, again, we're talking with Danny Trubeek, author of The Meaning of Signalness, uh, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. And again, we do have a few copies we're giving away, so text the word book to 877-933-2484. Just a little bit of a warning. This is a... a Pretty academic book, and so you'll be digging in deep on church history, theology, and a whole bunch of stuff, but if, if you like a good chew, or, okay, for some people, maybe this is what puts them to bed at night, I don't know, but it's still a very <laughs> important book, so, uh, yeah, text the word book to 877-933-2484. I want you to reflect now, Danny, on, okay, we mentioned you're single, and mm-hmm. for you, explain how... This vision you have that that I think the church has been working toward, because, again, church history, there's been a lot of talk about this uh, issue of singleness. How are you living it out right now? How does it how does it cause you to live here now? Doing this work and sort of immersing myself into this over many years now uh, has really it has. I have found it so incredibly liberating when it comes to my singleness. I'm not desperately sad being single, but I have my moments. I would love to be married. That hasn't been God's gift to me at this point in my life. But I'm used to being told by the church around me that my singleness is good if I'm using it well. If I'm feeling content about it, if I'm really, you know, giving my all in ministry, it's a very instrumental idea of my singleness. It's it's about the function that I make of my singleness. But reflecting on this vision of singleness that actually has a dignity, not in what I do with my singleness, but just in the fact that I am single, uh, that my singleness now has some correlation to what all of our state will be like for eternity, that liberates me from trying to find the only goodness in my singleness is in me, what I do with it, how I feel about it, how people perceive it. It actually helps me to see that even when I'm struggling, even when I'm feeling, you know, that, oh gosh, this is hard. And I I really wish that I, I had a husband, that it's okay to feel that way. It's okay to bring that to God. But I remember that actually God's vision for my singleness is much bigger than my own, much grander and much more wonderful than my own. And it actually helps me to realize that my singleness is meant to be outward focused as well, not just about what I do with it, how I feel about it, but living as a single person 
in the church in this life, I'm meant to be helping my other fellow Christians get a little glimpse of the eternity that is to come, just as when I look at my married friends, they're meant to be doing the same thing for me through their marriage. So I found it incredibly liberating and really very relieving to have this much more positive understanding of God's purpose for my singleness beyond just how I think and feel about it in myself. You know, Danny, um, okay, I, I've, I've been, unfortunately, I went through a divorce and I wasn't looking to remarry. And what you just said there about being outward focused is so, so powerful. And I didn't know I was doing what you're, you're, you're teaching at the time from this book. It just mm. was kind of the thing I was doing, uh, being a lot more outward focused in several areas of my life. And okay, Jessica came into my life and I am happily married, but I, I was in that season of singleness. And I, I, I compare it to what I had before I, you know, got married the first time. And it's like, it was different. It was, that was so internally focused and I was feeling empty. I need to complete myself. I've already understood my completeness in Christ, which I think is, plays into this um, with what you're talking about and how you're living your life. Yeah, there was kind of those moments you're, you're feeling lonely, but staying outward focused and focusing on the kingdom made a difference. So I, I want to thank you for what you're you're trying to bring about and help others understand. So again, Danny Truick, our guest right now here on Faith Radio on Mornings with Carmen. Her book, The Meaning of Singleness, and we again, we have a few copies we're giving away, so text the word book to 877-933-2484. Thank you again, Danny, for joining us here on Faith Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. Blessings. This is Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen. More on the way in a moment. All right. While mask mandates and coronavirus protocols are pretty largely gone, airlines are still grappling with a spike in unruly passengers. An analysis by the International Air Transportation Association found a 50% spike in unruly passenger behavior incidents between 2021 and 2022. Thankfully, most of the incidents don't deal with physical abuse, but still, these numbers are going in the wrong direction. I guess there's that reminder. Again, Romans 12, 17, and 18. Repay no one evil for evil. Respect what is honorable in the sight of all. And if, as, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with each other. Don't be unruly. Yeah. I'm Paul filling in for Carmen. Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio again. If you'd like to listen to any of these conversations again, hey, check out the podcast later this morning at MyFaithRadio.com on the Faith Radio app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.